Welcome, everyone. This is Mia Ferroletto, publisher of New Observations Magazine. Today we have the distinct honor of inviting and having Daniel Rothbart uh, on our program. Daniel is a very fine sculptor who is dealing with issues of consciousness and um, space and ETs and uh, all of our favorite topics at uh, at uh, dreamland and unknown country. So welcome to the show, Daniel. How are you? Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, as you know, we're beginning a series of interviews with artists uh, post or during the virus, the COVID virus, to talk about their experience with the quarantine and how this time, this quiet time, has influenced their art-making process, but also their own uh, consciousness and creativity. And your work fits so beautifully uh, into that that I'm really delighted to have you on the program. Thank you. So can you um, share with us a little bit about how you got into uh, the arts and sculpture and specifically? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I, you know, I, I grew up on the West Coast. I grew up in, in Eugene, Oregon, which is a, a vibrant uh, college town. Uh, but I had very little or no exposure uh, to contemporary art there. And uh, my par- parents and brother are both are all scientists. So uh, my first real exposure to um, or aesthetic experience that I found meaningful uh, took place when my, my parents brought me as a child to the Portland um, uh, Japanese Garden. And I, uh, I witnessed a, a tea ceremony. And I was really taken uh, with the experience. Uh, the, the nature itself uh, was so compelling and beautiful. And, of course, Oregon um, is a very lush, verdant uh, state. Um, but the Japanese idea of kind of distilling nature and uh, creating um, a, a kind of um, hypernatural environment through sleight of hand by kind of training trees to look as though they were gnarled or uh, creating slopes to, to create forced perspectives and such it was very intriguing also. And... Uh, I was impressed by, perhaps without knowing at the time, but the kind of animistic Shinto um, uh, uh, concept also that was that was a part of that that garden. And I, I was very impressed with the tea ceremony um, and the the grace and mindfulness of this um, of, of each movement, and also the um, the tea bowl, which was the uh, locus of uh, attention, you know, during during the ceremony, and I, I was so moved by that experience. And although we didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, avant-garde or experimental art uh, in that place, there was a, a real craft tradition. And I started to um, make ceramics, and I was particularly interested in, in Japanese ceramics and. Uh, this kind of studied imperfection and, uh, and and its use in ritual, and that was actually the beginning uh, of my my interest in the arts. And I, I went to RISD uh, as an undergraduate with the intention of studying ceramics, but the um, after going through the the foundation program. Uh, uh, and, and taking uh, a course in the sculpture department, I, I came to understand that, in fact, there, there were much more um, you know, possibilities with, within the, the realm of, uh, of sculpture, uh, and I decided to take, take that direction. Uh, and at the time, um, I was influenced, uh, you know, by... Uh, 
you know, by the work of, of, of my faculty and, and uh, certainly interested in following the, you know, currents of contemporary art uh, in, in New York of the 1980s. Um, but, but during that period of, uh, you know, of my preparation, I remember I had a professor at RISD uh, named Mike Fink in the English department, and I found uh, his courses particularly inspiring, and, um, you know, he introduced me to uh, the work of Jean Cocteau, uh, who, who was extremely influential uh, in terms of, of my, um, my aesthetics also, and definitely uh, uh, in counterpoint to, to, you know, the Eastern kind of origins of what I was doing. But I, I love the idea that this person was a, a painter and a sculptor and a filmmaker and a playwright and a poet. And, in fact, there were, you know, there weren't really distinct, demarcations between the different disciplines, um, and that characterizes my work. I, I make sculpture, I make objects, I do collaborative performance works. I, I'm certainly multidisciplinary, but throughout my, my career in the arts, I've also, also written about art, and I've, uh, uh, I've written uh, about non-art subjects as well. Um, and... So that's how I became interested in sculpture, and I went on to graduate school at Columbia, and at that time, uh, I think there was kind of a surreal aesthetic that was uh, very much part of my work. But I had the, the great good fortune to, to win a, a Fulbright uh, grant in Italy after graduate school, and that, uh, that brought me to Naples, Italy, and... Um, um, I, I produced work there. Um, I began to to show my work in galleries. Uh, one of those galleries was in Genoa, and uh, at the evening of the opening, uh, this would have been 1992, I, I was uh, introduced to a collector named Enrico Pedrini, um, and at the time, you know, my, my Fulbright money was kind of running out, and I'd approached the... Um, U.S. Information Service in Milan about giving a lecture uh, on the influence of uh, uh, Jewish thought on post-war American abstraction. So I had this, uh, and an exhibition in their courtyard. Um, and uh, so I had this date, and I invited Enrico to attend. Uh, and, and he came, and uh, he was very intrigued with the idea, and he invited me to um, develop the thesis into a book. And he approached a collector, a uh, colleague of his in um, Naples, who had a publishing house, who uh, published the work, and we traded copies for artworks, my artworks. Um, and that was the beginning of a 20-year friendship. But in terms of my development as an artist, Enrico is intensely, it was extremely important. Um, in a funny way, it, it came full circle because he introduced me to um, to Fluxus, to this international you know conceptual movement that was uh, uh, often performance based, that often that derived uh, um, you know characteristics of Eastern aesthetics, um, and, and also European conceptualism that I had little or no exposure to in America, like Arte Povera, which definitely influenced my my work. Uh, as well. Uh, it's so interesting that you bring up Fluxus because the founder of New Observations magazine, Lucio Pozzi, um, is involved in Fluxus and um, he thinks of his work, um, his styles of work, his types of work as being families and they're very distinct. Um, his performance art, uh, his watercolors, his paint, abstract painting, um, his minimalist arts. Uh, so he is from Milan, but uh, lived in New York City for many, many years and actually owned the building 142 Green Street where um, John Weber and Leo Castelli and uh, a number of other galleries, Spironi Westwater, um, were housed so, yeah, that's very interesting that, that you have this parallel to new observations. Well, Lucho is a fascinating artist. I, I actually met him through Enrico, and, uh, yeah, I've always been, you know, 
intrigued with his work, which is um, so diverse. But he's also a wonderful writer, and um, oh, yeah. you know, having founded No Observations, um, enormously accomplished. But his uh, his aesthetic is kind of a gesamtkunstwerk in, its, in itself. So. Well, interesting. Um, one day when he and I had brunch at at um, the home of friends of mine, and um, the director of Speroni Westwater was there, and Lucho had to leave early, and David, the director, said, um, "You know, Lucho is the American version of Joseph Boyce, which I think of him that way. He's taught he taught at SCA and School of Visual Arts and other places for years, so." But the students that he influenced, and interestingly enough, my painting instructor in undergraduate school used Lucho's teaching philosophies to teach me, you know, years before I ever met him. So it's 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 so funny how interconnected we all are, really. Uh, so true. I had the honor of uh, collaborating with uh, Lucho Pozzi. Um, I, when we were, uh, 2003, I, I had been invited to do a project at the Barrochello Foundation in Rome, uh, and I have this ongoing conceptual project called Meditation Mediation. Um, I, I created these 12 um, uh, cast aluminum vessel sculptures, and I invite... Uh, I invite people that I, I respect to uh, collaborate with me in a performance work wherein they, they fill the vessel with temporary meaning. And I remember that Lucho, Lucho and his little brother had created this, um, uh, this kind of nonsensical language, uh, and he performed a song with the language, uh, circumambulating the bull, and then he sang into the bull. A very, very moving, beautiful work. Mm-hmm. And his son, uh, Giordano, is also an interesting uh, designer and artist. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah, Lucho's done so many um, amazing things, and he and I worked very closely together for a number of years. I produced his performance piece, Paper Swim, at the Dia Art Foundation, um, where he had done it at Tyler, and he's done it in, in Europe, Um but the bottom floor of 155 Mercer Street was filled with crumpled end roll paper from, um, I think we got it from the New York Post and the Daily News. And even um, the Italian collectors, the Ponzas, came and take their, took their own swim through the paper. But for eight hours wearing a diver's costume, he would submerge through the paper and swim through it and then pop up and draw symbols on a pe- on one of the sheets of paper and then submerge again and swim around. It was quite an extraordinary uh, performance. It's so idea. interesting. And, of course, he's in Hudson. He has a, a studio. His studio is in Hudson also, which is Hudson, New York, which is approximately where you are, too. Well, my wife has a non-for-profit uh, called CR10 Arts, and she did a solo exhibition, um, hosted a solo exhibition of Lucho's work uh, uh, several years back. Uh, so, no, extraordinary. And Lorenzo Sinai, um, his companion, no, they're very, very talented. But Lucho, Lucho has such a long, you know, rich, you know, fascinating career in the arts. Yes, he does. He's an amazing, he's an amazing man. So getting back to your work and all this rich history, um, tell us about the piece that you've done recently up in Columbia County sure. during the COVID virus. Yeah, well, let me, let me give you a little bit of background then on um, that, that current in my work. Um, I was invited in 2007 by Enrico Padrini uh, to participate in OPEN, which is an open-air exhibition of sculpture in Venice. Uh, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do. Uh, and, of course, Venice is slowly sinking. And I like the idea of working on the theme of buoyancy and working in the water. Um, and how was I going to create a buoyant sculpture? I was thinking about different approaches. Um, and, of course, 
Venice has this extraordinary glass-making tradition, you know, these furnaces of Murano uh, and, um, you know, you know, family secrets for, for uh, glass coloration that were, were guarded, you know, um, over the centuries. And so I, I like to give using uh, glass as the buoyant armature for the work. Um, but going back to my own, uh, you know, upbringing on the West Coast, uh, I remember that these Japanese uh, fishing floats would would wash across the the ocean. They were they were created uh, for the fishing industry. Uh, they were blown from recycled sake bottles, um, and occasionally they would kind of uh, uh, be washed free of the nets. And then they they had this extraordinary resilience that enabled them to. Uh, traverse an ocean thousands of miles and, you know, weather storms and everything, and ultimately uh, kind of be washed up on on our shores in Oregon and California and Washington. So uh, I used a a large um, uh, fishing float, and I welded aluminum um, uh, armature around it and created this work titled uh, Flotillo, which involved a kind of serpentine... um, um, sculpture uh, low in the water, uh, buoyed by these antique glass um, uh, floats uh, that was installed in front of the uh, Hotel Excelsior in, in Lido di Venezia. Uh, and that was the beginning of my floating sculptures. And I was invited back uh, 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 in uh, 2015. I created another uh, uh, floating work. Uh, at this time in Judeca, um, and I became more and more interested in water. Um, and through Enrico, again, I'd come to uh, meet uh, Wolfgang Becker, uh, who, uh, who's a German curator who founded the Ludwig Forum for International Art in Aachen, Germany. And uh, Wolfgang uh, invited me to, to do a work there that was um, Aachen... Uh, is the, and the German word is actually derived from the Latin aqua, and it's a it's like a spa town like Baden-Baden, but there's this mineral water that courses under the city streets, but it's really neglected. And um, you know, he liked the idea of doing something, you know, e- even gold plating the manholes, you know, covering the water or something, you know, to yeah, to kind of. Um, express appreciation for this incredible resources. And there were a couple of spas in the town. The spas uh, sponsored my, my project. But um, once a year, they would, they would open these two wells um, and, and kind of test the, the heat of the water and the mineral elements and stuff. So that was a, a moment uh, that we capitalized on to create a performance work. Um, and... Sadly, Enrico had passed away. Um, this was in 2012. Um, and I, I wanted to do a work uh, in his memory. Uh, so I scripted a performance work uh, wherein I, I took these floating sculptures um, and uh, together with, uh, with local actors, uh, I created uh, a work that involved... Uh, the different stages of life, uh, youth, middle age, and old age, um, um, all, all of whom I represented middle age. And uh, we, we all took part in this performance together with a guide who is um, uh, dressed in black, uh, like a, a Japanese uh, puppeteer, uh, who guided our movements to the well. And we had these, these sculptures that were arranged in the... Um, uh, in the courtyard, and then we would uh, we would take turns immersing them and then reconfiguring them. Uh, and oh wow, that sounds beautiful, um, Daniel. We're about to take our first commercial break, so hold on. We'll be right back. Whitley's new book, A New World, is getting great reviews. American cosmic author Diana Walsh Pasulka says, "Enter this risky new world and leave empowered." New York Times reporter Leslie Keene says, Riveting, I couldn't put it down. Amazon reviewers are calling it life-changing, mind-opening, the first real description of what contact is like and will be like. 
Don't miss a new world. As Professor Jeffrey Kripal says in his preface, this book is contact. Get a new world today. Available as a paperback, a hardcover, and an ebook wherever books are sold. And as an audiobook read by Whitley on audible.com. When Plato's ancestor Solon received the story of Atlantis from this Egyptian priest, the Egyptian priest said to him, Many and manifold are the destructions of mankind. You have know of but one. But you Greeks are like children. There are many, many destructions of mankind by all various types of means. That's an excerpt from a show with Rand Flamath, who wrote the original book about crustal shift that is based on the theories of Charles Hapgood. There are three dreamlands with Rand over the years. That one's from 2015. He goes all the way back to 2004. And they are totally relevant and totally fascinating right now. All you have to do to locate those shows is go to our search engine on unknowncountry.com and input the words Flemath, F-L-E-M-A-T-H, his last name. And all of the shows will pop up. And then, if you want to listen to these incredible programs, literally available nowhere else on Earth, as far as I know, you can subscribe to unknowncountry.com for four ninety-five a month or thirty-nine fifty a year. And when you do, you get a literal wealth of enjoyment from this website, including the full-length Dreamland every week, every new Dreamland that comes up. So subscribe to unknowncountry.com, go to the site, and click on the Subscribe tab. Get started. Now subscribers can also listen through any app that accepts subscription-based podcasts. One that we use is the Castro app, and it works great. You can have Dreamland pushed to your app every week. Subscriber, now just as you can, as a free dreamlander. Welcome back to the show. That sounds absolutely amazing. How many performers were involved in this? There were uh, five performers. Uh, and that was, that was one of my first... Uh, usually with the meditation mediation performances uh, that Lucho was involved in, I would... My contribution to the work was the sculptural element, but in this one I actually performed myself... Uh, and I, I did another work with water um, uh, in the Gowanus Canal uh, in collaboration with uh, Jessica Harris, uh, a, a dancer and choreographer, where we took one of the floating sculptures. It was a choreography for two canoes and a floating sculpture. And we, uh, each in a canoe, we did circumambulations and counter-rotations of the sculpture in the middle of the canal in an act of uh, gesture, kind of re-enchantment or... Um, appreciation for this beautiful, uh, sublime waterway that had been so, you know, terribly corrupted by uh, the presence of all these kind of chemical factories of, uh, over time on the banks of the canal to make it one of the most polluted in the United States. So, um, and, and then I, I also did a um, water issue of... Uh, uh, PHA, this uh, Journal of per Performance and Art, I had been um, uh, invited to to um, to write a um, an essay and, and four commentaries on the theme of uh, water-based performance. So it was something I was, uh, you know, conversant in and uh, you know excited about. Uh, and when the when the COVID epidemic um, set in. My wife and I, I, I normally we live in, in Brooklyn and, you know, uh, kind of commute on, on weekends to, to Hudson, but we um, uh, we came up here in March. Uh, my wife uh, was a, a wonderful gifted artist, Francine Hunter McGivern, um, has an immune condition, so we were particularly sensitized to the risk and, and came up here. Um, and I have these pieces that I that I exhibited in Europe, and 
initially, I, I just found it so oppressive, the idea that you can't you know, make human contact or you have to be intensely cautious about you know, any interaction and the, you know, just, just feeling loss at so many levels. Uh, but on the positive side, we, we live across from Oakdale Lake, this lake in, in Hudson, New York. And I started to, um, uh, I started to make work, you know, floating sculptures for the water. I could cross the street and, you know, work on test floats and, uh, you know, counterweights and how to cantilever them so they float in a particular way. And I, I just started to get involved in, um, in, in making, making artwork again. And uh, I applied for a grant from the uh, Hudson Tourism Board and was fortunate, fortunate enough to be awarded um, a grant. Um, and you know, while I was here, basically, I created uh, three new, new sculptures. Uh, I had three old, older ones, and I exhibited a constellation of works uh, in, the, uh, in the lake, and I used the grant money, actually, uh, for honoraria to invite um, uh, people who I uh, respect enormously. Um, Wayne Kustenbaum, the, the poet and uh, performer, um, Carter Radcliffe, Richard Malazzo, uh, and also uh, Vladimir Shvets, the dramatic baritone, and uh, Alexandra Robova, who sang uh, water-themed arias uh, from Rusalka and uh, Anton Rubinstein's The Demon. So, in a way, it was just a wonderful opportunity not only to um, make and exhibit new work, but also to collaborate with uh, people that I hold in the highest regard. And, um, you know, I also do, I do videography. That's part of my, my day job. So I, I use that, that skill to record the um, uh, programming events. And then we do, did e-blast. So it was a wonderful way also to, to share what was going on at the lake uh, in a safe way with the um, cultural community, and the response was very, very positive. I think it was, uh, it captured people's imagination, and I think there was a, um, um, you know, it was a, it was a way, uh, albeit kind of limited, you know, given the, the circumstances, but it was a, a way to reach out and, and collaborate and communicate and be part of a, a broader community. Uh, um, even in the midst of a really you know, challenging time. I think people were doing and continue to do that all over the world, which is yeah. fantastic. Um, and, you know, artists have a need to, to be with and share with other creative people. It's such an intrinsic part of the process for, for, you know, the artists to get feedback I think we're, you know, I think we're made that way. Um, and um, what was the response? Um, you must have gotten, received a flood of emails and phone calls and people reaching out to you. Well, a, a number of people, you know, responded and appreciated the kind of multi-sensorial um dimension of the project, um, even without experiencing it directly, I think it, it was something that, um, that touched people. And uh, certainly uh, at a personal level, for me, uh, it was a, a really um, palliative and I had been feeling pretty, um, you know, depressed and, and kind of isolated and uh, you know, you know, as everyone is kind of confronting their their mortality and you know potentially in this situation, and um, I I was just I, I I am so profoundly grateful to have the opportunity to to uh, to make work and and show it and be you know part of a you know, a dialogue with the broader community and that that was something I didn't anticipate, but uh, again, it's something I'm just very, very happy that it worked out. And, and 
you know, it was it was something that that was had a definite kind of you know healing effect uh, on my own personal life. So it's sure. great. I I have no trouble believing that. I I think um, many artists I've spoken with have said similar things to what you've just said that they found this time to be highly productive and um, a very creative period for them in in many ways despite you know everything that's been going on around us we are going to take our second uh, and final commercial break here we'll be right back did you know that practically all of my books in print are now available directly on the new unknowncountry.com store unknowncountry.com Click on the Store tab on the masthead and explore. You can find everything there from A New World all the way down to some older titles like Black Magic, which is actually about remote viewing, and but it's not about the public remote viewing program. It's about something else rendered into fiction, all kinds of interesting stuff in this store, a whole lifetime of my discoveries and explorations in fiction and nonfiction. Make use of the unknowncountry.com store. It's a lot of fun. This is a commercial about a subscriber interview that we did back in 2008 with Jim Mars as the host, where the possibility that Saudi princes were involved in assassinations around the world is discussed. That was in 2008. Now, in 2020, the situation is much more open, and there seems to be a real possibility that this is going on. UnknownCountry.com is a place where you hear it first. Listen to this. He's the one that, when he was caught in Pakistan, then the then White House uh, press secretary, Ari Flasher, said he's the, the top al-Qaeda chief that we've caught to date, and we're going to make him talk. Well, they <laughs> did. They tortured him, but it didn't work. So then they tricked him uh, by making him think that they were bringing in Saudi uh, interrogators who, you know, with the idea that he'd think they would stop at nothing and he would get scared and he'd tell them what they want to know. And instead, he was very relieved and said, well, thank goodness you guys are here, and proceeded to tell them that he was actually working for three Saudi princes and right. that their cutout was an air marshal mirror of Pakistan. As a subscriber, you'll get access to every Dreamland recorded, hundreds of subscriber interviews, access to live chats with celebrity guests, and our vibrant subscriber community. We believe that this is by far the best offering of its kind on the Internet. So go to unknowncountry.com and click on that subscribe tab right now. Welcome back to the show. So Daniel, I'm I'm particularly intrigued by your um subject matter. There's a lot of um kind of space and ET references in some of your work and was curious to know where that comes from. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, Jeff Bailey, the, the gallerist, uh, did a studio visit uh, before the pieces uh, you know, went in the water, and he saw a lot of kind of um, you know extraterrestrial or, or Sputnik kind of references or you know to, to space, and it's certainly something that, that interests me. And, and you, um, uh, I, I'm honored to be part of the new issue of, um, of New Observations uh, with a, a collage image of one of my sculptures being manipulated by um, uh, astronauts on an international space station. Um, so it, it's certainly something that, that intrigues me, and in a way those works really do seem very alien to their, their environment. I mean, the, the sculptures are inspired by growth forms and branching, but they're also... They're, crafted out of uh, welded aluminum, and aluminum is such a foreign kind of material. It's, it is kind of like a material of a, a flying saucer or a spacecraft or what have you. So uh, I, I think there is something of that. And there's also a, um, uh, 
uh, um, I mean, some of, some of the images are definitely uh, biomorphic too, or uh, you know, refer to uh, uh, imagery uh, that could be, um, you know, that seems like a, it, it could come from a parallel kind of universe. So. Um, I think that that's that's a fair kind of um, assessment. But uh, I was also influenced, I think, just by um, I always liked the the idea of uh, the the relationship between uh, you know between artist and nature is, is uh, and, and going back to that experience with the Japanese garden too uh, it's, it's intriguing I mean the, the Japanese um, you know love nature and seek to em- you know um, uh, uh, kind of synthesize it or, or you know create this kind of distillation of nature in, in their garden that isn't really nature it's kind of a um, uh, you know, a rarefied version. Yeah, a stylization of, of, of nature that, that um, you know, in, in a smaller space, in miniature, perhaps with, with even more kind of um, uh, intensity. Uh, and in these works, you know, often the the, um, the sculptural elements are, are derived from. Uh, shapes and forms in nature, uh, geometry, repetition, branching, uh, all of those elements. So that was something that intrigued me. But again, like uh, like you were thinking in terms of the, the UFOs or, or uh, science fiction, uh, the aluminum uh, stands in really stark contrast to the, the natural environment. And... Uh, in Hudson, particularly on Oakdale Lake, it's a spring-fed lake. It's a stunningly beautiful um, natural environment, and then you have these aluminum forms, and it kind of reframes your perception of the the environment. And yes, they they seem to uh, echo some of the shape natural shapes around them, but they're definitely not of that place. So they are they are very foreign, but they're also um, you know in in dialogue and, and counterpoint to that nature, um, uh, and, and well, everything is found in in everything is found in nature. Um, your collages were uh, or are intriguing to me, based on your combining of, um, say, elements of consciousness with a Buddha image, or um, a hallway that's going back in into space. Uh, dealing with psychological components, um, and then these aluminum forms uh, kind of being introduced into this particular um, scape, mindscape, landscape, um, uh, cosmic um, scape in terms of the astronauts floating at the space station, so you're really, um, whether it's it's deliberately, con- you know, whether you're conscious and doing it deliberately, but you're weaving in and out of all of all of these dimensions um, in in your collages. And the other thing that I find interesting and running parallel to that is is the whole um, idea of your interest in working with water. You know, water. Um, is found in three forms, um, liquid, solid, and, and gas. And, um, 70% of our bodies are made up of, of water. Um, you know, I love the, um, um, graduation speech that David Foster Wallace gave, um, wasn't that long before his death called This Is Water. And he's talking about the reality of reality, you know, and he just keeps, at the end, he just keeps repeating, this is water, this is water. Water is constantly changing and flowing and transforming itself into something else. Um, And there was one 
collage in, in particular that for some reason reminded me of the work of Dr. Emoto with water and the fact that, you know, our consciousness um, and the words that we put out there have a direct impact on the state, on the crystals, crystalline state of water based on whether we're sending positive um, emotions out or negative emotions out. And in an interesting way, I think your work plays with all of those aspects. Well, that, that's very intriguing. I, I love the, the mutability of water, too, and, it's, um, and, and perhaps that characterizes the nature of my own artistic practice. I'm certainly interested in spirituality. Um, but my wife introduced me to Nichiren uh, Buddhism, and you know, I chant each day. And uh, one of the uh, one of my earliest sculptural works when I was living uh, in Rome back in the, the 90s uh, involved uh, a series of 18 vessel sculptures uh, that I would exhibit in the streets. I would I would take them maybe into the kind of um, working-class neighborhood of San Lorenzo, which was known as a kind of hotbed of uh, student activism in the 70s. And uh, I, would, I would arrange the vessels and then photograph whatever situations they precipitated. And the, at the time, I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm interested in Eastern um, philosophy and also my own faith tradition, which is Judaism. And, of course, there's a... Uh, kind of creation story about the breaking of vessels in Judaism. So, so the vessels were, were uh, you know, have been an important kind of leitmotif in my work uh, uh, for many years. And, you know, after, uh, after the World Trade Center attacks, which my wife and I experienced from close quarters in Tribeca, I won a... Um, uh, a residency at the uh, London Pool Art Foundation in uh, southern France, and I brought these twelve vessel sculptures with me, and uh, I didn't know what to do there, but I liked the idea of kind of uh, all of a sudden I, I thought of them uh, in terms of begging bowls rather than uh, you know what, what there's so much out there uh, why why do you have to make something new? Maybe you want to just carry those bowls and see what kind of you know, uh, situations you encounter or, you know, who or what crosses your path and then uh, kind of fill them. So I, I would rather than, I, I would take them, carry them around, and when I found a, an interesting circumstance, I would, I would put them, you know, arrange the vessels and photograph them. Um, and then that evolved into the Meditation Mediation Project, which uh, in its first iteration was in uh, the Barokello Foundation uh, in uh, yeah, uh, 2002 uh, or three, and that was when I collaborated with Lucho. Um, but again, I, I think there is a, a kind of a spiritual dimension uh, to this, and uh, it, it's funny between the the, the Buddhism and, and Judaism. I think there are, there are interesting kinds of um, uh, uh, parallels. Also, I mean the the uh, this this story in uh, Kabbalistic uh, Judaism is about uh, uh, vessels uh, that were intended to be filled with divine light at the beginning of time, shattered and uh, you know, became um, the, the shards of the vessels uh, became uh, kind of lost in, in our world and, and uh, the duty of a righteous person is to, to find them and return the sparks to uh, the divinity, um, and perhaps a way of doing that for me, anyway. Uh, in a way, I thought of that in terms of postmodernism and a kind of decentering or a world without, you know, ideology, what have you. I mean, this kind of um, the shattering and uh, uh, dissemination of, of light, uh, and you know, finding it and uh, you know. Returning it to the divinity in some way, I, I like that idea. And for me, the collaboration was a, a really important dimension of it to animate the vessels through collaborative work with other artists and uh, create some kind of, uh, you know, ephemeral uh, experience with them um, was was important and had a spiritual dimension and. 
so the meditation mediation project uh, can continue still, but continued for a, a period. And I realized that the vessels also had a, a very strong kind of resonant uh, um, um, uh, kind of character. I mean, you could sound them, and they, they uh, created this, this beautiful kind of um, uh, ringing sound waves. Uh, and uh, so I've also collaborated with um, composers and uh, choreographers uh, working with the sound. So most recently, I think the you know the themes of, of water and sound are, are particularly um, important to my my, my work. Uh, well, water carries frequency, also um, you know not just sound frequency, but energetic. Spiritual energetic frequency—it's a major conductor. Um, you know, it's interesting. I did a project. Um, yeah, I did a, a meditation mediation um, event at White Box in New York, and I collaborated with uh, Lisa Park, a Korean uh, artist who works with uh, with sound waves. And she, actually, in this case, she she um, she had attached sensors to her her forehead. Uh, that were um, that activated, uh, you know, a sound waves or a speaker that was underneath the vessel sculpture, uh, and the vessel was filled with water, so that her mind and her um, her thoughts essentially uh, created this energy that would animate the water. It was it was so brilliant, really interesting. Uh, so well, we all have the capacity to, to to do that. I mean, that we're we are at the point in time where more and more people are connecting to their own spiritual gifts and being able to use them. Um, and that's a major preoccupation of, of mine and has been throughout my life. Um, I, I'm very psychic. I was born psychic. I've um, had these gifts since I was a small child. Lucho actually turned it turned my last name into a verb. He calls it feral wedding when I'm out there making things happen in the world. And, um, and I, you know, I am a manifester in that way, but it's something that each and every one of us has. And once we accept the fact that it's part of our natural birthright, um, we all have the um, ability to um, utilize it. Utilize that energy. Agreed. No, so. just, yeah. Tendering your, you know, developing your Buddha nature. You know, well, my crown chakra and third eye have been open 24-7 for almost three years now. I would move in and out of these phases um, since childhood, but um, I had my big electrical moment <laughs> almost three years ago where my whole brain kind of rewired itself. And um, it's been a very interesting journey since then. And I think people in the arts are more prone um, to that, and you know, sense of opening and awareness and enlightenment, for lack of a better word. I hate to call it that, but... Uh, connecting to the light that we have within each and every one of us. Well, that's, I, I, I agree. I think that artists have a, a, a high level of sensitivity um, and an incline, uh, you know, inclination toward uh, spirituality. Uh, I would certainly agree. So um, in quarantine... Did you notice anything particular or specific in your own consciousness that um, was kind of asking for a closer look? Um, well, a lot of it for me was about contending with, with loss. I mean, I had suffered uh, personal loss, um, all, you know, shortly before the um uh, the pandemic set in. I, I, I lost uh, George Rothbart, who was a dear um, uncle of mine and a uh, very important figure in my life. Uh, and then shortly after to um, 
to lose my freedom and uh, ability to, you know, interact with friends or, you know, be in my home. Uh, you know, so many, um, you know, all of a sudden I was in this this very uncertain kind of dangerous <laughs> reality. Um, so it was... It was heavy. I mean, it's for, as it is for everybody, it was hard to hard to contend with. And, and um, I, I was finding that you know I was having a lot of trouble sleeping. I was you know coping with depression. And um, uh, for me, the art making it, it was uh, you know it, at difficult times in my life. It's always been a a, a means to uh, uh, you know find uh to to look inward but you know and to to you know work within the the structure of a different kind of language or uh it's such a um uh it's so much about you know sensibility and intuition and uh kind of arcane decision-making that's difficult to characterize with language, but it's like it's a different language. And for me, doing that work, I found very um, uh, very helpful, um, uh, you know, during this period. And, um, and, and as you said, working with, with water also, which is a life-giving element, and so much of our bodies are water, and it's, uh, it, it's part of the life of the planet, and... Um, it's really the stuff of life, and to to work with that, and and even you know, it's silly, but the you know, to make these floating sculptures is kind of about you know the condition we all find ourselves in. All of a sudden, we, we we're trying to you know, kind of you know, weather the storm or get you know, get through this this situation that's that's very uncertain, and and um, you know. Yet there was something so cheerful also about your your pieces floating around out there in in the lake. You know, there there was such a whimsical quality to it, um, along with the in, intrigue. But um, you know, they were they had a certain lighthearted element to them as well. I'm happy you see them that way. Uh, and uh, Wayne Kustenbaum also said that they were they were very optimistic sculptures. I, I like that. Um, it, it definitely changed my my state of, of mind. I mean, I, I did feel that. I mean, there was a playful dimension to this, and you know, creating uh, uh, these kind of phantasmagorical objects too. I mean, they're as you say, they kind of like UFOs are referred to, you know, some kind of alien life form, or or you know, they're they're playful and. Um, and in dialogue with this this natural space, it was a um, you know very exciting kind of opportunity to to do something um, uh, outside the uh, confines you know very distinct confines of my my circumstances. Yeah, I you would not um, think looking at the images from from the piece that you were. Um, depressed or isolated or dealing with a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it brought me out of the depression, to be honest. I mean, I, I've always found that you know, art making was a, a source of comfort and pleasure and, you know, uh, levity at some level. But, yeah, in this situation, it definitely helped me to get outside my, my myself or my troubles and everything. Yeah, it's a wonderful piece, uh, and we will have images uh, of it um, along with your interview and your bio and so forth um, all together. Um, so what's on the horizon? What are your plan next plans um, in terms of a project? Well, actually, this, this winter uh, I have the um – distinct good fortune and honor to work with Richard Malazzo on a, a book project. Um, Richard's, um, I'm uh, creating a series of new uh, digital collages uh, that will be en face to Richard's uh, um, poetry uh, in a volume titled More Fugitive Than Light. Uh, and that, that's what I'm going to be working on primarily um, this winter and, and very excited about. Oh, that sounds great.
And do you have a, a an expected date that that will be released? Um, no, like the water, it's very fluid. I, with, with, uh, I actually, this is my second book with with um, with with Richard, and really, there's no. Um, it's ready when it's ready. We're um, we we go through a long kind of um, design cycle, and uh, I'm still in the process of, of making works. Um, but hopefully, uh, within a year's time or so, it should be uh, ready. But I, I'm, I'm happy to focus on it uh, this winter, uh, and uh, I have ideas. And I love working with with Richard, who's uh, you know such a brilliant um, Renaissance man, somebody who's a, a, a poet and uh, a publisher, a critic, uh, immensely gifted, you know, brilliant human being. Yeah, he's he's certainly very very talented. I haven't seen him in in quite a long time, but um, I know he and the show are old friends. That's right. That's right. Um, he, actually, he's been uh, involved with new new observations as well as a guest editor and advisor. That was my first experience with new observations, actually. When I first met Richard through Enrico, uh, uh, Richard gave me copies of new observations that he and uh, uh, Tricia Collins had, had uh, uh, for whom they'd been guest editors. So, uh, mm-hmm. of course, I was very impressed. Yeah, in January, the magazine will have been uh, in existence for 36 years. It's really hard to believe. Extraordinary. <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> so we're getting um, toward, toward near towards the end of our time t- together, Daniel. Is there any um, anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Any spe- specific thoughts on the pandemic itself, or um, what we have to? look forward to perhaps uh, in your opinion post-pandemic uh, now that we almost have the election behind us or at least uh, tallied? Mm. To be honest I find it so overwhelming it's it's hard to contend with I mean the uncertainty too uh, but uh, yeah, as we've, we've discussed I, I think you know it is also a, a really um, important opportunity for uh, creative uh, exploration and introspection and my own limited kind of expression of that I would invite um, your uh, listeners to uh, to go to uh, danielrothbard.org and uh, and view perhaps some of the collaborative um, uh, works the, the poetry reading by um, Wayne Kastenbaum, Richard Malazzo, Carter Radcliffe and the, the beautiful opera arias uh, performed by Vladimir Schwetz and uh, Alexandra Rabova. And, and well, we'll have um, that. We'll have those links um, with your interview for people to check out. Wonderful. That would be great. I I um, I think your work has a great deal to offer um, people. Uh, and I, I think it's very timely as well with all of the things and that are being disclosed right now in terms of space and um, the New York Times is currently uh, over the past couple of years, two years, December of 2018, they came out with their first serious UFO space uh, article. Um, there's so much disclosure happening all around us and governments are releasing, you know, their files and their classified documents. So um, I personally have had uh, contact myself on numerous occasions, and it's, it's, it's not what, you know, it's not, it's not what we're, we've been led to expect it is. It's really all about consciousness and, um, you know, a spaceship is not going to land on 
the lawn at the White House, um, but there are people all over the world who are uh, contactees and are communicating on a regular basis with other beings. So um, it's a it's a very interesting time. And again, I think people in the arts, because of the, of their work and their sensitivities, are are leading the forefront in many ways in terms of the expansion of consciousness and not not just with beings you know from other planets but also communicating with other species right here on earth um you know animal communication in the last 20 or 25 years has become accepted and respected and um all you have to do is go to YouTube and see these extraordinary videos of animals you know interacting with people and other animals that you know you are shown that um on average animals have been undervalued and underappreciated and underestimated you know until now but um so much is opening up to all of us I think what you're saying is really intriguing also given the the circumstances. I mean, when with the pandemic, all of a sudden there was no international air travel and the skies were quiet and, um, you know, people weren't driving, you know, uh, around as much and and traveling, uh, interstate travel. And all of a sudden the, um, you know, the carbon emissions, uh, you know, plunged. And uh, at the same time we saw... Nature's really um, uh, menacing, destructive aspects and these terrible wildfires out west. Uh, so I, I agree. I think we're being uh, increasingly sensitized to our dependence on the natural world and also our power to uh, you know, remediate problems. You know, if, if we're a little bit more uh, moderate in choices we make, um, you know, with regard to to emissions and. This, this work in the lake, it, it certainly, you know, it was about uh, maybe reframing people's perception of this uh, uh, this waterway or, or this lake that was kind of, you know, taken for granted or um, perceived in a certain way. And the sculptures would would move, you know, in, you know, they were they became kinetic and animated by the. The, the force of the wind and, and uh, you know, currents of the lake. So uh, I, I think it's true. This is a moment to really, you know, reflect on our dependence and on and relationship with nature and how to improve it. Well, we are all connected. Um, I've spent a lot of time in recent years with the Lakota Nation, and um, one of their expressions is, and it means it's to all my relations. We are all related. And everything is related. And in their culture, you know, the four-winged and the, and the, the you know, the birds of the air, like it's all family, um, which coincidentally has always been the way that I've thought of it all. Um, and I'm a, a big animal rights uh, advocate, but um, we're coming into this new place. Um, we're being thrust there, actually, by external circumstances. And, you know, speaking of Venice, um, as soon as people were quarantined and the canals started to clear up, the dolphins returned to the canals in Venice for the first time in a very long time. So Earth knows, you know, Mother Earth knows how to heal herself. Um, we just have to cooperate. I've agreed. That's so, so uh, critical uh, at this time. But um, it's been so much fun um, seeing all the birds come out. I'm sure in Hudson it's the same thing. In Vermont, um, you know, there are species of birds I haven't seen in years. And as soon as the quarantines began, just huge numbers. It just seemed like everything was happier. The trees were more vibrant. Yeah. It was really something. I, I always say, yeah, I, I think of uh, 
birds as kind of omens. And I, I remember uh, immediately before we installed the work, this uh, goldfinch uh, came and landed on one of the sculptures uh, oh. in water, and I was just so delighted. And before Wayne uh, gave his poetry reading, a bald eagle uh, flew overhead. And I've been living in Hudson on and off for 12 years, and I'd never seen one in our you know neck of the woods and everything. So, yeah, again, it's you know it's about. Uh, uh, you know, the, the in a funny way, you know, as devastating and destructive as the pandemic is, uh, it's also changed our relationship to nature, and uh, and, and um, hopefully it will, you know, sensitize us to make better decisions, you know, going forward that are more attuned to, you know, the you know, natural world that's so critical for our survival and, you know, for our our ability to really flourish in the world and be in balance with nature. Absolutely. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. I I look forward to seeing uh, what you do next. I, I really appreciate and enjoy your work. Thank you. Mm-hmm.